Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us the Spirit who allows and invites and compels our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, Dad. You who gave up your Son for us, who brought us into your family at the cost of your beloved Son, how how can we not trust you to graciously give us all things that we need? Oh Lord, would you help us throw our cares upon you? Would you help us come to you with the weight of the world? Oh Lord, we're just... We are weighed down. We are grieved by what has happened in our nation this week. It it is such senseless, in the most literal sense of that word, it is senseless violence. It is awful. It is a tragedy. It is something that just is beyond our ability to, to get our hands around. And we know, Lord, that this is the kind of evil you have witnessed through all the years of human history. And it is exactly this kind of evil that made the cross so necessary and so incredibly wonderful to us. I pray that as we speak this morning, our hearts would be encouraged and lifted up, that we would be reminded that you are on a mission to rescue this fallen world. And we're especially conscious that it is a fallen world this morning. Lord, would you comfort not only our hearts, but especially the hearts of those directly impacted by this shooting in Connecticut. Oh, God, be with them. Hold them tight. Draw them to a place of comfort, whether, whether tomorrow or in ten years, that they could come knowing your redemption as hope beyond all imaginable hope. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Our, uh, our sermon this morning is about fear and thanks and joy. Today is the joy Sunday of Advent. And while the, the things that have been on my heart in preparing this have revolved around the issue of fear leading to joy, I'm struck this morning that it's an especially appropriate time, in light of all that's happened in Connecticut, for us to be talking about Fear and sorrow, and the two are closely linked. Our, our sorrows are the things we most fear. That which has happened that is hurtful to us provides a picture for us of, of what could happen in the future. And what we fear in the future is informed by our sadnesses and our griefs and our hurts about what's happened in the past. So I want to, to do something this morning that may sound strange, which really is to start us with a look at fear, a look at sorrow, a look at grief, But I don't want to leave us there. I want to take us from fear and grief toward joy. Toward the joy that really is ours in Christ, in the gospel, as he meets us. I'd like to do that through um, a a passage of scripture that I'm I'm sure you're all familiar with this story. And actually, I looked out the window and about, oh, what, 15 minutes ago now it started snowing? Maybe even a little bit longer. And we're going to be talking about manna which was the, uh, the bread that God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness uh, when they left Egypt, which is described as little white flakes on the ground. So I think God uh, knew what we were going to be talking about and decided to give me a little visual out the window. So if I see you looking out the window in the middle of the sermon, I'll, I'll assume it's because you're so struck by his visual and not because I'm boring you. Uh, please don't disabuse me if that's not the case. 
So if you have your Bibles uh, or grab one in the pew, flip on over to Exodus 16 and uh, and we'll read together. I'm going to not read us the whole chapter. I'm going to kind of pick and choose a few different verses to capture the flow here. We'll start with verses 1 through 3. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. If you've read much of the Bible at all, you know that these are not the kinds of things that you want to say to God. Uh, The people of Israel are not going to be praised for this response. Um, it's called, called grumbling in its most basic form. And it's treated as a very serious sin in Scripture. The sin of grumbling is one for which people are held to very strong account. And I want to speak more about that. But, but let's start out just thinking for a moment together, why are the people grumbling? What, what is going on for them in this moment? And, and I want you to come to a place where you actually say, huh, I kind of see where they're coming from here. They sound a lot like me. They're sympathetic characters. So let's, let's think about this. Where are these people right now? Well, it says uh, in verse 1, they're in the wilderness. Now, this is a little bit tricky for us to really get our heads around, because when we hear wilderness, we think, what's outside? We think pine trees and forests, and you know, there's deer out there. If you know what you're doing, you can get one with your bow, or if you're not as good, you, know, you maybe have to use your rifle, but you're going to come down. And the wilderness is a place that's teeming with life, and it can be, of course, a dangerous place, and you don't want to get caught out there in the winter, but, but it's, a, it's a place that's green and lush and verdant. That, that's our image of wilderness. Scary, but, but full of life. That is not what wilderness would have meant to the original readers, to the original author of this passage, or to the people who were in that wilderness. That wilderness is a desert. It is barren. I had the opportunity to go to uh, Israel for a few weeks uh, in high school, which was uh, just an incredibly wonderful opportunity. And we actually walked from a... We, we drove in a bus out from Jerusalem and, and uh, out to the edge kind of of the, the hills on which uh, Jerusalem sits, the plateau, and then walked down to Jericho, um, kind of the setting where the, um, the Good Samaritan happens. And this guy gets mugged. And um, it is unbelievable to think that people have subsisted in this region for this long. I don't, I don't know where anybody keeps sheep. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Where did that come from? I mean, it is bone dry. I mean, there, there's a, a little thorn bush over here. And over there you can see a little tuft of grass. I mean, the wilderness is not a good place to be. So here they are, the whole congregation of them is out in in the wilderness. Now, we're talking thousands upon thousands of people who have just escaped from slavery in Egypt. They were sent with provisions and goods that the Lord provided them from their Egyptian neighbors. But if you you notice in verse 1, they've been out there for about 45 days. Okay, this is the 15th day of the second month since they set out. So about 45 days, a little less than seven weeks. Well, I don't know how much you can carry, but Packing out seven weeks of food, uh, you've stretched yourself to the limit here. You need to find more food somewhere. Here they are in this barren wilderness. Now, what's it like to look at your kids 
in the tent at night. You've just journeyed that day. And your neighbors, thousands and thousands and thousands around you, are looking at their kids, and you're thinking, we cannot possibly hunt down enough game to feed ourselves. We have not sowed any crops. We're, we're out in a desert. We're not going to forage for food. There is no food. There is no source of food. If we journey tomorrow as many miles as our feet can carry us, we're not going to find food. And here are my hungry children sitting in front of me, looking at me, wondering, what are we going to eat? What's that feel like? What's it feel like to see your children in danger? I, I hope that immediately in your minds you're beginning to think, even in terms of our own context, since Friday of this week. We know right now as a nation about children in danger, children suffering. What do we do in these situations, in these circumstances, when we look at a very real danger that these people faced? I think you can understand why they would look around, look at their circumstances, look at where they find themselves and say, Why have you brought us out here into this desert? At least in Egypt, at least when we were slaves to Pharaoh, we had food. We weren't about to die. Our children weren't about to die. God, what's going on? Why have you given us Moses and Aaron? Why have they let us out here? We wish God had taken our lives then. I hope, I hope that if you, if you slow down and listen to where they are, you can resonate with that. I hope you can understand the, the depth of concern in their heart. Before I move on to talk about the other piece of the puzzle that they are missing... Let me just make one suggestion. The grumbling that they do is the wrong response. It is a deeply, deeply wrong response. Because at the end of the day, what it does is it says, I look at my situation, it doesn't look good, and so I accuse God of not being good because he has put me in it. They're so close. I mean, they're right to be concerned about their kids, right? I mean, the Bible is full of encouragement and, and command. Love your family. I mean, love your enemy. Jesus says, I mean, love your kids. Of course you're to take care of them. Of course you are right to have deeply on your heart a sense of concern for them when they're in trouble. So, so a sense of fear that something bad might happen to your children in a fallen, broken world where bad things do happen, that is not wrong. That is not sinful. But where they go with it is they let their circumstances tell them who God is. And they then go and they accuse him and, and they grumble against him saying he is not good. So here's an application this morning. When you are afraid, do not accuse God, but rather run to God. Do not speak against him, speak to him. Take your fears to him because if he is who he claims to be, then fear is actually an opportunity to know him more deeply in his provision and love and majesty and power. I um, read a, a wonderful book in the last couple of years called A Praying Life by a guy named Paul Miller. And he's got this great line where he says, Anxiety is wasted prayer. Anxiety is wasted prayer. Anxiety invites you to just endlessly dwell on your circumstances. Prayer is the cry of an anxious heart to the one who can do something about it and who is doing something about it and who is promised to. Now, now let's let this lead us right in to, to the real story here. These people have taken a very selective reading 
of their circumstances, haven't they? They look at their kids, they look at the desert, the lack of food, the lack of anywhere they could get food, and they say, we're in bad shape. Let's, let's broaden that picture a little bit, shall we? What, what did we say, seven weeks that they've been out? What happened seven weeks ago? Well, the Lord visited Egypt with the tenth plague. So he'd sent nine miraculous plagues, awful things happened to the Egyptians, blessings upon the Israelites, and after finally the tenth plague came and the Lord killed the firstborn son of, of every family that did not have the blood over the doorposts at the Passover. And he, he took the greatest superpower on earth who was abusing them, who was using their power to keep the Israelites in slavery and servitude against which they cried out bitterly. And God has delivered them by striking down their enemies. He has answered the evil of the Egyptians, the oppressive, murderous evil of the Egyptians, has been answered by God's justice and His mercy, and the people have been let free in the greatest miracle that's happened in all of history. And then, they're, they're fleeing through the desert. Pharaoh changes his mind. He comes out after them with chariots. They're being chased by, essentially, tanks and helicopters, and they are running with not so much as a pitchfork to protect themselves. And God delivers them through the Red Sea. They have walked through a body of water parted by the winds. I mean, have you ever had that, anyone? I mean, you need to get to your field quickly and and the lake part. I mean, this doesn't happen. If it's happened to you, please come up to me afterwards. I'd like to speak with you and learn about this. Most of us have the response, what that would do for my faith, I can't even tell you. If the Lord would actually part waters, if I actually saw a burning bush, if I were delivered through ten plagues, I would have no trouble believing anything that God would tell me, and I would have no trouble trusting Him in every circumstance, because it would be so obvious to me. This has all happened in their last seven weeks, okay? I didn't, I didn't read the end of chapter 15, but uh, even a little bit closer to, to home for them here, uh, it talks about this place called Elim, where they're setting out from. And it's described as a place with twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees. Interesting. Twelve springs of water, twelve tribes of Israel. Do you get the picture? There's enough water. They were thirsty, and God gave them water. And there are palm trees, meaning this is deep, you know, trees can spring up in the desert because there's so much water spilling out. They've been given enough. Here they are a few days later, no food. So they've been delivered from Egypt. They've been delivered through the Red Sea. They've been given water when they're thirsty. These people are insane, to grumble against a God who has provided this many things in the last seven weeks. What could be more obvious than His trustworthiness, than His care for them? We, uh, we read 1 Peter 5-7 this morning earlier, and it's, it's probably my favorite verse in the Bible. Cast your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He cares for you. If you know that God cares for you, it changes everything. And it radically reorients your response to your fears and your hardships. Ultimately, the sin of the Israelites, it was not that they were deeply concerned and upset and even afraid for their children. Their sin is they thought God didn't care. They thought God wasn't concerned. They thought he had led them cruelly out into the desert to abandon them. That is not who our God is. Our God is a God who cares for his children. And your greatest love for your closest loved one at your best moment is a feeble shadow of his caring love for all 
who are his children, who call him Abba, Father, through his Spirit. Let's look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. What, um, what should verse 4 have said? Here's what verse 4 should have said. And the Lord said to Moses, Surely, for, surely Moses, thou kiddest me. <laughs> Are these people really doubting my goodness? Especially after the water I just gave them? How can they be so fearful and faithless and doubtful? I am done with this stiff-necked people. I am going to rain down sulfur from heaven and burn up this people and start over again. If I'm feeling merciful, I will start over again. If I'm not, I will will bring the judgment that this world deserves. That's what verse 4 should have said or something like it. Here's what it says. Let Let me read it again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion, and I will test them to see, will they walk in my instruction? Well, I think we know how they're going to do on that test. Not real good. They are, they are people who are able to grumble, whose hearts turn so quickly in the light of their circumstances. But here's the point. This is a God of mercy. This is not simply a God who cares for you and, and is going to take care of you in the, in the needs of your life. This is a God who, when you completely blow it, when you grumble in the face of His love, when He's brought you to a place of, of testing to grow you and to, to demonstrate His love anew, and you fail completely to see it, and you grumble against Him, and you accuse Him of being bad, yet His response is merciful. Here He is saying, Behold, in the face of your faithlessness, I'm going to provide yet another miracle. There are going to be white flakes covering the ground, and they will sustain you. I am the God who provides bread for you mercifully. Now, what is the greatest gift of God to us? What what is this manna pointing toward? It's pointing towards Jesus Christ. It's pointing towards God's ultimate provision. The answer to death itself. We're a nation this week conscious more than ever of the reality of death. You you cannot escape death when something like this happens. And, And you can't escape looking at it and thinking about it. It is a horrible thing. This is not how it was meant to be. Our God loved us to the point of death himself. He lost his only child in an awful murder on our behalf. He cares for us. There will be many people in our nation this week who look at the circumstances where they find themselves and they look at this shooting in Connecticut and they will say, God, why have you made this world? Why have you let it go in such awful directions? You must not be good. We wish that we had never been born. We wish we had died in Egypt. We wish these things didn't happen. You cannot be good in a world where things like this can occur. And that is exactly the wrong response to the right concern of the awfulness of this. Because God demonstrated His love on the cross for us. And it's the same problem that they had in the wilderness where they looked around and they saw stark, awful circumstances and they said, 
God, we don't understand. How can you be good and this is going on? How? How can this be? That's the right question. Okay? God has promised and told us who He is. The right question is, God, how can this be? The wrong follow-up is, you must not be good. And we shake our fists at you, and we know better than you what would be best for us. Nobody, the night before the manna fell, nobody expected to wake up and find bread on the ground. Nobody thought that would be his solution to the problem. The disciples in the upper room the day after the crucifixion, they did not expect the resurrection. God had shown himself to be a providing God. No one knew what it was going to look like. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, knowing he was going to raise him in ten minutes, because Jesus grieves with us in our sorrows. And then he redeems us from those sorrows in radically unexpected ways. We know our God is good. That is our hope. We don't need to know why this young man did what he did. We'll take guesses. We'll see what comes out. We will never know fully what was in his heart. And it wouldn't help us that much if we did. What we do know, God is at work. He is redemptive. He is the God who provides. And he provided his son on the cross to answer our deepest need. And the deepest need of our fragile and vulnerable children. And he is good. And he is working. Flip forward, if you will, to to verses 16 and then 19 and 20. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And then 19. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Well, he should have been angry with them. I mean, yet another provision has just been given them. And and notice the provision, too. It's take as much as you can eat. It's not, you know, you've got just barely enough to get by. Everybody take exactly, you know, this much, but no more. It's, yeah, go get as much as you can. Everybody t- and Omer was the amount, essentially, you could eat in a day. So everybody, whatever, how many people you've got in your tent, that's how many are going to be provided for. The manna buffet is open. Uh, feel free to just go out and collect whatever you need. Go get seconds. Go, go take it out. The only thing is, you can't keep it. You've got to be dependent again tomorrow. And, and I hope... You are taking an honest look at yourself and realizing you are exactly the same in your approach to your material needs. Yes, God, it's great that you provide, but my preferred way for you to provide would be months and months and months of margin and supply and a, a big bank account and very obvious you know, place where it's going to come from tomorrow and, and so on and so forth. These people, in one sense, I mean, while they're eating the manna, they are one day away from being starving in the wilderness with no food. They are going to be radically in need of this manna every day, and they have no control over it. And I think, if you're honest with yourself, most of you would have to admit, if you're out there collecting manna, you're probably thinking, you know, there's a lot out here, and if I just put a little little extra away and keep it for tomorrow, then if it doesn't show up, you know, we're still going to be okay. At least we'll have something. You know, we'll have an extra day. That's how you think when you worry about your circumstances rather than looking to God and saying, He's the God who provides. I don't know what it will look like, but I know He's trustworthy. Now, what does this tell us about God? I love what this tells us about God. It tells us He knows we need it daily. He could have said, I gave you the Red Sea, I gave you the plagues, 
Moses has this cool staff that turns into a snake when he throws it on the ground. It's pretty slick. You should watch him sometime. He gives us manna. You know, he gives us these things that are these radical one-time things. Oh, and, and let's not forget the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that they followed day by day through the wilderness. Uh, if a pillar of fire were leading me around at night uh, to get to Bible study, again, I'd feel pretty good about that and God's place in my life. These people have these incredible things, and God gives them something daily because He knows the weakness of our hearts. He knows our faithlessness. He knows we can't hang on to these big things. How much more should we as Christians look at the cross and have that be enough for us, right? I mean, the cross, the one-time deliverance of mankind from the dominion of evil and sin and death, this was the only thing we could possibly ever need. And what does he do? He says, I know you need it. I need, you need it daily. You need to come back to me daily. You need to be dependent on me daily. You need to find your bread from me daily. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus teaches us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Do you realize that your daily bread, the food you eat, you personally, right now, whatever you have for lunch today, that it will be a gift from God, from your Father. Growing up, my dad would always uh, pray before dinner, and he would always finish his prayer, Thank you for this food, evidence of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I've thought about that phrase more and more as I've gotten older. What a right thing my dad was instilling in us and and turning to God with a sense of the little, tiny, mundane, nitty-gritty stuff, the the parking spot you hope to get right by the entrance to the grocery store when it's cold, the, the, the lunch provided, the child sleeping through the night. That's a big one for me these days, uh, as, you, as you all heard earlier. Um, there are the little things, and, and he delights to care for you in the tiny details. And he knows you need to be cared for in the tiny details and to see those little provisions of his grace as his care for you. The bread you eat is from your dad, and he's taking care of you. And when you can see that, when you can remember that, when you can know that, it helps you hold on to the big things, to the fact that he has cared for you ultimately in the cross. He knows it's a both and. And so we are to fight our fears, and we are to fight our sorrows. We're to, we're to grieve, but, but we're to, to come to the experience of fear and grief and sorrow with a confidence that our Father is good and He is providing for us and He loves us and He's going to give us something. And if it's manna on the ground tomorrow, there will be enough. And He knows we need to be dependent on Him every day. If He gives us a week's supply, it'll be a week before we come back to Him with thanks and supplication. My friends, let, let's be people who see the manna that we have as manna, who see the bread that we are given as the gift it is. Let the little things that he's given you help you believe for the big things that he has given. One last, uh, one last pair of verses and then we'll close. Uh, we're going to look at 33 and 34. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it. That was known as one day's worth for one person. And place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept.
We all need these moments. We need these jars full of manna. We need places where we say, this is what the Lord has done for me. To be kept through all our generations. We need reminders of His faithfulness. That's why there's constantly these altars being built on the way to Jerusalem. The tabernacle finally becomes the temple, and there's one place where the altar is and and where God himself dwells with us. But all along the way, there are these altars, these reminders, these monuments built to God's faithfulness at special moments in Israel's history. That is a beautiful picture for us as Christians. Where do you need to put something in a jar and put it on your shelf as a reminder that God is faithful? Where do you need to, to remember and reflect on the goodness of God in your life in a way that brings you to His love for you again and again, that He is your Father who cares? I, I've said that this is about fear, thankfulness, and joy. What we're talking about here is cultivating thankfulness. We're talking about becoming thankful people, people whose hearts see God's goodness. To, to be thankful, to, to have thanks in your life, must lead to joy. Because when you are thankful, you are seeing what is true, which is that your Father cares for you. And you can cast your anxieties and your sorrows and your pains and your griefs upon Him. In the uncertainties of this fallen world, you can go to Him. My friends, the manna was bread that kept alive the people of Israel in the wilderness. There are many times when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Ultimately, the bread of life, the true bread of life, Jesus Christ, has been given to us. And all those who believe in Him, who call upon His name, who run to Him in the desert and say, Help! Help! I'm in a desperate situation. I need you. All those who come to Him asking Him for what only He can provide, we will be fed on the richest, fullest, most beautiful, wonderful bread in all of history, and we will eat it for all eternity. That is joy, my friends. That produces thankfulness in our hearts, a thankfulness that is unshakable by our circumstances, however dire they may be. And that leads us to rejoicing and joy that will spread out into all eternity. So let's, let's feed on Him one day at a time for the rest of history. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You gave Yourself up. You gave Yourself over to the violence, the senseless, foolish, evil, wicked, intentional violence of this world. You know utterly intimately what it's like to grieve loss. Thank you that you did this on our behalf. Thank you that you provided for us the bread of life broken for us. Oh Lord, every time we break that bread together at your table, every time we eat anything, every time we see your provision in the smallest of ways, let it be for us a tiny picture of the real story. Let us not be, Lord, like the Israelites in the desert who who saw hardship in their lives as a sign that you were not good. Let us rather turn to you. Let Let us live as 
Christians, those who say, My God is my Savior, He will be faithful. May our hearts be full of thanksgiving as we see your provision unfailingly throughout the centuries and throughout our lives, in our community. May we be good at reminding each other of what there is to be thankful for in our lives. May we ask each other where we are thankful. And, O Lord, may we be people of joy in the midst of a dark world, a light shining forth because we have been loved and cared for. May we cast our anxieties on you knowing that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.